The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let me pray. Father, we look around at this world that you've made, and it is a good and beautiful place in many ways. But it is true that there is comparatively nothing here for us. There is much here for us, and there is nothing here for us. The psalmist says that I have no good thing apart from you. That tone is, is impres- present in many psalms. We have no good thing apart from you. Teach us the truth of that. Teach us to look to you constantly and find all of our life in you. And then through you to enjoy what you've placed here in the world. To enjoy you through what you've placed here in the world. It's our hope and our need, Lord. We are made for you. We need you. Today, Lord, we will think a little bit about how you have cemented our relationship to you brought us into communion with you. We give you great thanks for that. And I pray, Lord, would you open our minds and our hearts to understand, to see, to appreciate what you have done at Pentecost, what you do now since Pentecost. Lord, give clarity to my words. Give clarity to our thoughts. Bring us to a place of worship, of thankful hoping in you. Spirit, be present in our midst here to open our eyes and let us see you. It's my hope, Lord, that we would see you, would exalt Christ, would be thankful people, and that you would then turn and use us mobilized in this world for your honor's sake. Do a little bit more of that this morning, I pray, Lord. Amen. probably a good thing that you bought the actual fire pit rather than the gift certificate because back at our home I'm in the process of not just working on sprinklers but installing some new basement windows and that's a huge project the, the ones that we had were the little windows that were up near the top of the wall that no one could ever get out of and hardly let in any light so we've been changing those out to put in some quite large ones and that involves a lot of digging outside and I've known that I'd be doing this for quite some time now so Months ago, I, I broke ground with my own shovel and was digging a hole, and, and it, was, it was going pretty well. I had a, a three-foot by a two-foot by a four-foot deep hole dug with my own shovel, but it was getting a little difficult because the angle was making it hard to get the shovel in and get the dirt out. So I'd taken to breaking up the ground with a bar and then climbing into the hole with a little trowel and a bucket and scooping the dirt <laughs> into the bucket, picking it up, and dumping it out. And that was getting a little old. So I finally took Phil up on his offer, his offer to bring over a really big machine and get it done. And in due time, he did. He brought over a really big machine, and it still took a little while, but by nightfall, there were two four-foot by six-foot by six-foot holes in my yard, and he'd also torn off both of the concrete and 
uh, steel rebar window wells. And we sat there and looked at it and thought, well, those are really big holes. <laughs> and there's no way on earth, none, that I was going to get that done with my little trowel and bucket. <laughs> Not going to happen. It, it seemed doable at first. When I first broke ground, the, the top part was kind of easy. I could get my shovel at that dirt and pick it up, wheelbarrow it out relatively easily. It seemed doable. But I had no real concept of how large the task was or how mismatched I was, my abilities versus the job that actually needed to be done. And you and I spend a whole lot of time in exactly that same place in our spiritual lives. It, it seems doable at first. So we take our shovel or our trowel, take a couple of stabs at it, get a little bit of dirt moved, but we have no idea what actually has to be done in here and out there in the world, what we've actually been called to. We have no concept of the magnitude of the task and how mismatched we are with it. So we keep working at it. It's a little tough, but I'm getting something done. And God says, you're going to need bigger and better power for that. Thankfully, he's provided it. And that's what we're going to look at today. Looking at Acts chapter 2 today, I'm going to read verses 1 to 21, even though it's a little bit of an odd place to stop because it's right in the middle of Peter's sermon. I have to stop somewhere, though. We're going to come back to this part of Peter's sermon next week. We need a little bit of it this morning, though. So let me read Acts 2, verses 1 to 21. I'll be looking at the power that God has provided for us to live life and to engage in the mission that he's called us to. Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, and Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, and Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, and it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. On the day of Pentecost, the long-awaited Spirit of God is finally poured out. On Pentecost. Now for many of us, we're so familiar with this that we don't even realize that Pentecost is not actually Christian. Pentecost is a Jewish feast. It literally means 50th, as in the number of days after Passover. And at this time, in the Old Testament, 50 days after Passover, God had prescribed that there be a feast of celebration, celebrating the harvests of the barley and the wheat that were coming in at the time. Another name for this was the Feast of First Fruits, because they brought to God in thanks the first portions of what was to be a much larger harvest. The first little portion. There's going to be a whole lot more, but we bring this to God right here, right now at this feast. Pentecost, since the time of Moses, thousands of years ago, was the time to worship by bringing to God the first fruits of the harvest. Catch any irony here? This is the perfect time for God to bring in the first fruits of the harvest. Of the spiritual harvest of souls. It's going to be much larger. It's beginning right now at Pentecost. We're going to see that happen next week. But here now at Pentecost, they're all gathered together, probably referring to the larger 120 person group. As you keep reading on through the end of chapter 1, the they still seems to be the whole group. And as you look ahead, the number of languages that they spoke were more than 12. So it seems it's more than just the apostles, it's the whole large group of people that are all gathered together here. Perhaps they're praying. And then suddenly, this doesn't slowly build up like a storm, suddenly something happens to them that's spiritual. It comes from heaven, but it's also tangible. It's physical. They can see it. These are manifestations that are often associated with God. Rushing wind and fire. Wind rushing inside a house. That's odd. And what's even more odd is the divided tongues as a fire that divide, evidently from a central pillar or central fire, they divide and they rest above every single head of all those present. Fire from God. That's unusual. Rushing wind on each person, says the end of verse 3. They were all filled, verse 4. It wasn't just a few of them, all of them. And in response to being filled, it says they, they spoke in tongues. Come to that in a second here, but let me talk about these couple of terms here the, the filling and the rushing of the wind and the baptism that we talked about earlier. It's important when talking about the Spirit and, and some of these issues that you not get too hung up on the terminology because in lots of theological circles, these terms get defined in different ways and it can be confusing. Here's what happened in essence the Spirit came on them, the Spirit was poured out. This is the baptism, which has happened now to all Christians. 
And a second thing happened to them. They were filled, they were taken over by the Spirit and did something remarkable. We're going to see that in a second. It's the difference between having gasoline placed in the bed of your truck in a container or in your trunk or poured into the gas tank. The Spirit is always around, that would be in the bed of the trunk, and now he's been poured into the gas tank. He's present in people now. And then they turn on the engine. Something happens that's, that's remarkable and powerful. The engine begins to run, fueled by the gas. If you think about that analogy, I think that helps sort out some of the terms here. The Spirit is always present in the world. He's now in the believers, and he's also fueling the engine that's going to run in them. And they speak in tongues as a response to that. Again, a lot could be said about this. A lot of ink's been spilled about debating tongues. This is not a topical sermon on tongues, though. So I want to encourage us to look at this text and to not bring in many of the things from other places, be they experience in our own lives or other passages like Corinthians. If you look at Corinthians and Acts, you realize here we're talking about something slightly different than Paul's referring to in Acts 12, 13, and 14. I mean, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. There, the tongues are, are a personal gift, a spiritual gift, but they need an interpreter or they make no sense to anybody. They're for self-edification or if you're going to edify the public, you need an interpreter because it makes no sense. Here, it's the exact opposite. There is no need for an interpreter because it makes perfect sense. Everybody hears and understands because these tongues are clearly known human languages. Leaving off what happens in Corinthians, don't import that in here. We're going to stay focused on Acts. The tongues that are spoken here are known human languages. Understood without an interpreter, in fact, that's the point. It says three times. We hear them speaking in our own language. How is that? That's part of the point. Every nation under heaven is gathered here together. Verse 5. Literally? No, not literally. There probably weren't any Chinese there. There probably weren't any people who lived on the island of England. But figuratively speaking, every nation under heaven has been gathered together here. He can say that for two reasons. One, he's about to list off all these Mediterranean world countries. And secondly, the people that he lists are representative of the table of nations from Genesis chapter 10. Back in Genesis, the sons of Noah... After God destroyed the earth in flood, the sons of Noah are the only people left and everybody flows out of them. These folks are representative of those people. So in a sense you can say all the nations are descended from Noah and from his sons and are represented here. Every nation under heaven gathered together. That strike a chord with the scope. Sound familiar? And they all hear this sound as the 120 are probably gathering at the temple to worship, and as they're traveling through the streets, people hear them and are remarking in bewilderment. They're amazed, they're perplexed, they're confused, they're astonished. Luke piles on the words, what is going on here? Because we all hear them in our own language, and these folks are Galileans. Not educated folks, they're, they're, they're country people. Looked down upon, really. They're kind of backwards in our minds, but they are speaking in the languages of the earth. What's going on? And what they're saying is remarkable, too. 
They're not just saying simple things like, you know, traveler's uh, foreign language, what, you say, what your name is, and you ask where the bathroom is and how much things cost. It's not real simple language here that they're using. They are declaring the mighty works of God. Perhaps they're singing out the Psalms or sharing their testimony about what God's done in their lives. It's significant what they're saying and it's significant how they're saying it in the languages of the peoples. God here is being spoken of. Picture this. They've all come to Jerusalem to worship at one place in Hebrew. And what God is doing in their midst is he's decentralizing himself. I'm available in your own language. Listen to the mighty works of God in your native tongue. You nations. This is right on the theme of Acts. I will be preached in the nations, starting in Jerusalem, right here. And they're all amazed and perplexed. As an aside, this is a a good illustration of why we must verbally explain the gospel. Because everything requires an interpretation. This is the most remarkable work of the Spirit since the creation, and it requires an interpretation. This is something, they know it's something, but what is it? What's going on? Tell us, explain it. Some develop their own interpretation and say that they're drunk. But most know that's not true. It's not even nine in the morning. They're not drunk, but what is going on here? Please explain this to us. And so Peter rises to do just that. Stands up with the other 11. Remember last week we were talking about how it's important that there be 12 when they stand together? Here it is right here. It's important that Peter stand up with 11 guys, not just 10 other guys. Because what he's about to speak about is the prophecies made to Israel, fulfilled now here in this community, and if there's only 11 of them there, it doesn't work. There has to be 12, and there are. And he stands up and begins to speak. This is not drunkenness. Give me a break. You know it's not. Here's what it is, though. It's what Joel spoke of. And these devout men all knew Joel. They'd read Joel. It's a short little book in the Old Testament. They knew what Joel chapter 2 said. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, men and women, young and old, free and slave, all. Joel talks about a time when God is moving in judgment on Israel and then it forecasts a time when in the future, at the end, in the last days, God would move in great blessing and deliverance and he would signify that by pouring out his spirit. And Peter says, that's what's happening right now. This is the day of deliverance and all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And to stop there, Peter goes on, has a lot more to say. It's kind of an awkward spot to stop in in the flow of the the, the train of thought here. But stopping here, reading half the story, there is a point being made. Luke's pressing something upon us. Here's what it is. God has poured out his spirit for you and for others. Not a complicated point. God has poured out his spirit for you, if you're a Christian, and for others, if you're not yet a Christian, that's you, or if you're a Christian, it's those out there, those not yet in here. He's poured out his spirit for you and for others. I'm going to divide that into three different parts to address it this morning. God has poured out his spirit 
for you and for others. Begin with the God has poured out his spirit. In a way, we've been looking forward to this now since the middle of summer when John began to teach about the Spirit being poured out. He's talking about how the Holy Spirit would come and would be a teacher and a guide, a corrector, a convictor, an influence. We've been looking forward to it, but those folks there that day have been looking forward to it for centuries. Even back in the day of Moses, this had been forecast. Do you know the story in Numbers chapter 11? There, Moses is having difficulty dealing with leading all of the people. And so he prays and asks God for help. And God says, pick out 70 leaders, set them aside, and I'll take some of the spirit and put it on them. I'll take some of that spirit that you have, my spirit, and I'll put my spirit on them and move them to help you. And so he does that, but two of them stay in the camp. And so when the spirit falls on them and they begin to prophesy in response... It causes a bit of a ruckus in the camp. And Joshua says to Moses, Moses, will you stop this? And Moses says, no. I wish that everybody, that all of the people of God had the Spirit poured out on them. That God's Spirit would live in every believer. That's my wish and my hope. We have to settle now for 70. But one day, won't it be the case that one day, all of them will have the Spirit? I long for that day. I'm not going to stop it. Encouraging it. Fast forward to the prophets, Ezekiel, a passage we looked at in referring to the living water, John. Ezekiel says that day is going to come, chapter 36, verse 25 and following. He says, God says to his people, one day I will sprinkle clean water on you, cleanse you from all your impurities. I will take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit on you. And move you to follow my decrees. One day, there's a day coming when I will move you to follow my decrees. I will move you towards obedience. Christian word, sanctification. I will sanctify you by putting my spirit in you. One day. Joel says that one day is at the end. At the very end of God's working on the earth, he'll pour out his spirit. That day has finally come. They waited 500 years after Joel. Jesus walked the earth, claiming, I am the one who initiates that day. I am the deliverer. I am the hope of Israel. I'm the hope of the nations. And I'm going to prove it by pouring out my spirit. And they waited, and they waited still a little bit more, 50 more days. And finally, he's poured out. Here now, at this point. The spirit is poured out on his people. Like a bucket turned upside down and emptied, never to be regathered. So what? I mean, that's a nice history lesson. So what? Does it matter to you? I mean, really, does it matter to you? Does it? If you had any idea of the size of the task you face in your own heart and that you've been assigned out there, it would mean the world to you. But most of us don't have any idea and so we pick up our trowel and we head out to the little hole that we're digging. Doing okay. It's tough, yeah. But if I get down in the hole and I scoop a little bit more, I can get a little more dirt out today. I'm making some progress. 
The Spirit was poured out here at Pentecost. Changing everything. Unless you don't see it, and then it changes nothing. He poured out the Spirit. It mimics it a couple of times through the book of Acts to show that, yes, as I said, I am also pouring out the Spirit on Samaritans. And yes, as I said, I'm also pouring out the Spirit on Gentiles, full-blood Gentiles. Because we could be confused here, because while these are people from every nation, they're all, they are Jews. Once to make it clear throughout Acts, I'm pouring out the Spirit on all peoples. This now, though, from that day on, this is the age of the Spirit, which means it is not the age of money or programs, human ingenuity, skill. Are all those things irrelevant and unimportant? No, all those things are important. But all those things only do anything when filled with, driven by, empowered by the Spirit. If the Spirit is not here, we individually die, and this entity dies, the church. Thank God that he's poured out the Spirit. Now here, where we live in the United States, in the year 2007, you are probably a bit familiar with the Holy Spirit, but it has not always been the case in Christian history. The knowledge and understanding of God's work through God the Spirit, third person of the Trinity, that ebbs and flows throughout history. I remember reading a, a, an article in some books about, in, in a research project about the late 1800s, the United States and in England, alarmed at how little Christians understood about the Holy Spirit. Called him an it called him a, a ghost. I read a statement by a, a Christian leader. God the Father I get. God the Son I get. What is the Holy Ghost? I don't get that. In writing. I don't understand. Christian leader. And I went on, I read statement after statement after statement. By God's people. Made by God's people. I have no idea what's going on with it what its role is in life. Why I'm even supposed to care about Pentecost. Christians saying this. I pray that's not you. We should know, we must be fixed on the fact that without the Spirit we perish. Because what we are addressing, the task that's been assigned to us, is a spiritual one. It exists wholly in a realm that we cannot touch. We can't put our hands on it. We can't think into it. We're dealing in the soul. You look out and you see the effects of sin in the world. You can't solve those without solving the soul of individual people. And you and I cannot touch the soul, not even our own. The Spirit is our only hope. We must lean on Him. Cast all of our hope upon Him. Pray like we mean it. Now, yes, we're going to have to work. Yes, we're going to have to be active like we talked about last week. But we must depend on God in that activity. We are spirit-made people, a spirit-driven people, a spirit-grown people. Our task is just the same. Spirit-empowered. If you got this, if I got this, we'd pray. 
We pray more. We pray that God change people's hearts. That God change my heart. That God reorder what we think and what we value, how we act, that He give us strength and determination. This must happen. You must think constantly, Spirit of God, work here, please. He has been poured out so as to be trusted and utilized. It's been poured out for you. For you. Moving on to the second part here. Ultimately, in this larger context, the Spirit's main purpose in the book of Acts is witness. We're going to come to that in a minute. But you realize, before he utilizes you in witness, he's first going to do something in you, personally, individually. The Spirit has been poured out in this age so as to bring individual people into an intimate, vital relationship with God. Personally. You. Previously, the pillar of fire led the nation of Israel. Led them through the desert. Big pillar of fire, big group of people. It was all corporate. The pillar leads them. Or maybe fell on some leaders like the 70 with Moses. Or some kings or some prophets. Very minimal though. The very top slice of society, if you will. The leadership and the the corporate entity. So perhaps you come to Pentecost and you'd expect, okay, Peter probably will be filled with the Spirit. Maybe the twelve, but it's everybody. The pillar divides, the text says, divided flames as a fire on each individual head. Now where I'm standing, I can look at all of you and I can picture a little flame of each one of your heads. So look around for a second and think what that would look like. A big pillar of fire up here, split on each one of us. It's God decentralized, if you will, in you and in you and in you and in you. I very often think, I find myself very often thinking about God dealing with me and you're my friend, you're my coworker, you're my spouse, you're my child. But it's harder for me to think about, first and foremost, God's dealing with you. And maybe I'm your spouse and I'm your coworker. The other way around. God is dealing with individual people. So you know so and so. You've met them. You know some of their issues. God's at work in that. He's developing it, changing it, convicting them of sin, growing them in holiness. In individual people's lives. He comes to rest upon each one. He gives utterance to each one. Each one speaks. Joel's prophecy said the Spirit would be poured out on all, men and women, young and old, slave and free. Every individual person gets the Spirit. So, speaking to Christians here for a minute, you have a personal, unique relationship with God. There's a hundred ways that can be abused, but it's still true. You have a personal, unique relationship with God. Think about that for a second. Yes, other people do too, as I was just saying, but so do you. God knows you. 
He knows your hurts and your pains and your thoughts, the things that you're concerned about. He knows you. And He is at work in you to grow you into Christ-likeness, which is the greatest of all blessings for you. He wants to bless you by making you more holy, by helping you to understand Him better. He is tremendously concerned about you individually. Yeah, he's a big God of a big world. And yes, he has concern about the corporate entity, of course. And that begins with you. This is a corporate entity formed of individuals who are in relationship with God. It's personal. Do you relate to God like that? Personally. Oftentimes in the church, we kind of relate to God through other people. I see so-and-so doing this, that's what I should do too. So-and-so values this, so should I. So-and-so is involved in this ministry, so should I be. God made you in a certain way. God is growing you in certain ways. God wants certain things from you in a certain time, in a certain place. It may be that God comes and meets me through the writings of people who have been dead for 400 years. He does. And you may not like to read it all. God may come and, and meet you in nature or in, in music. That's good. That's fine. You need the Bible's truth come to you in your way. Because you're you. Think of a parent with different kids. You all know kids are different. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. At the same time of year, the same season of life, they're different. You have to deal with them differently. God deals with you and you and you and you differently. It may be that for now, love Jesus, obey his commands is enough theology that you don't want to think about anything else. And somebody else may be highly concerned right now to understand eschatology. Both of those are fine. If that's where God has you right now, good. I'm not saying there's no corporate entity here, that there's no body of truth that we must get, but I'm trying to emphasize when the Spirit is poured out, the Spirit is ministering to individual people. You. And if you're not a Christian, He wants to speak to you individually as well. Don't get lost in the Christianity, church, it's about you and God. What is your stance in relation to God? What is your opinion of Jesus? What do you think about him? Not your family, not your father, not your culture. You live in a place that makes it very difficult to think individually about you and your relationship with Jesus. But it is intensely personal. Do you know Christ? The Spirit wants to change your heart and bring you into intimate relationship with God as well. Yield to Him. 
It's what he wants to do. We should give thanks and we should yield to him. He wants to grow you in relationship with God. So, so how do we cooperate with that? The old hymn had it, had it pretty good. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Those two things. We cooperate with the Spirit's work in our life by trusting and obeying. We trust Him. We, we lean on Him. We hope in Him. We say, would you, Spirit, would you come and have your way in my life? You are God. Whatever you want is right and good. I will trust you. In fact, I'm going to hope in you. Please. And I'm going to obey what I see so far. As with any authority relationship, disobedience is detrimental. You can't say I'm going to trust and not obey. You have to trust while obeying. Say, I see what you've said so far. I'm going to obey that much. Show me more, please. Change my heart more. Give me a little more help in, in obeying you in this other area, in, in this area here, over here. Trust him and obey what you know so far. The word commonly used is, is yielding. Like If you think of driving, you, one person yields, let the other go, lets the other go in front. You yield to the Spirit and say, you lead me, you guide me, Spirit. And I'll obey whatever you show me. He'll use the Scriptures and he'll show you. And poured out for you. Finally, the third part. The Spirit has been poured out for you and for others. You put a little finer point on that here. I want to say it in a little more detail. The Spirit has been poured out to gather together the nations in Christ. This is a really interesting part of what's going on at Pentecost. He's been poured out to work in you individually and to use you to gather together the nations in Christ. Obviously, this is the most prominent role of the Spirit in the whole book of Acts. I hope we don't miss that and, and overlook it getting lost in discussion or, or exploring the, the role of, say, tongues or something like that. The Spirit's main role is about gathering in people. It's less about Him giving the gift of tongues and more about Him speaking to people in their language. Clearly, there are human languages here. Why did God speak in many human languages? The obvious answer, he has a message for people. He wants them to understand it. Back at the Tower of Babel, God, in mercy, confounded the worst of pride in humans. He held us back from the worst of our pride as we were trying to come together and build up a tower to reach God and become God even, we thought. He limited us from the worst effects by confusing the languages and scattering people abroad. God created the nations. God created multiple languages as a protection on us. But that creates some problems. And here he's overcoming them. Crossing over the barrier of, of culture and language. I will speak to you, he says, of the wonders of God in your language. 
Again, very personal. You, your language. I'm going to deliver the message to you. What's going to happen? Peter's going to deliver the message of Christ here in a a moment. We'll read about that next week. He has a message that he once delivered to everybody, crossing over all cultural barriers, and he's going to use spirit-filled believers. You again. In different ways, but everybody speaks in tongues. Everybody reaches out. Only one person stands up and addresses the whole crowd. It's exactly the guy that we would thought to do it, Peter. But everybody has a part in it. Everybody receives utterance. Everybody prophesies. Maybe you're, you're not Peter. Maybe you're like the, the Samaritan woman who just goes and brings people to hear Jesus talk or hear Peter talk about Jesus. Or maybe in the book of John, you're like the blind man who says, I don't really know very much. All I know is that I was blind, and now I see, and that Jesus did that. Deal with that. Or maybe you are Peter, and you're going to stand up in front of thousands of people and tell them the whole goods. One way or another, he's going to use you. That's why he gave the Spirit here. That's why he filled them. In the church here, we would do well to remember this because very often, if we think about the Spirit, we think most about the Spirit in connection to sanctification. Spirit changed my heart or Spirit changed so-and-so's heart. But the book of Acts is going to say, yes, that's true, but mainly think about Spirit. Pour out this message through me to others. We've got one emphasis, Acts has another. We would do well to think about this. The Spirit's main agenda here poured out on individuals so as to reach other people with the message. The message is, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In real brief form, in one sentence. And all who do not call upon the name of the Lord will not be saved, but will perish. you have any idea of the scale of that mission? To say that to every nation under heaven, to say that to an individual person and hope for anything to happen, it's impossible. I cannot reach into your heart. You can't reach into anybody else's heart and make them call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Because our hearts are constantly, firmly bent towards ourselves. To call upon is to hope in, to trust in, to give allegiance to. And our hearts are exactly the opposite of that. Our hearts hope only in one thing. Me. Evidence of how how I think about... You all, I think about you all in relation to me. You're my friends, my co-workers, my spouse. It's all about me, and I'm even a Christian. It's still the same. Our hearts are bent towards us. Ever since the fall, that's the way we are. And you can't change your heart. You can change your behaviors, some. 
you can get maybe four feet deep or so, but you can't dig a hole that's deeper than you are, wider than you are long, and tear off concrete that's reinforced by steel. A little trowel in hand. Not going to happen. Impossible. But that's the message. Those who call upon the Lord shall be saved. How is that ever going to happen? How is anybody going to call upon the Lord? How are we going to help people to do that? Spirit, do your work through us. Motivate us to step out of our comfort zones. Give power to my words so that when I say them, they mean something. Spiritually, they travel into the soul and change what's in there. Spirit, you said you would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's your job. Please do that. Because the only way anyone will be saved is if they call upon your name. Help them to do that. Awaken them so that they will. The scope of the job we are called to. Growth in holiness in here, yes, but especially carrying the gospel to every nation under heaven could never be done apart from the Spirit. Thank God that he has poured out the Spirit to do that and that this is the age in which he is doing it. We live now in that time. Thank God that he has done that and trust him. Embrace that. Beg the Spirit to be active through you and in you. He's poured out the Spirit for you and for others. Let me pray. Spirit of God, would you please, please come and do your work in our hearts. I stand here and I, and I pray and I preach and I sense a, a coldness in the room. Even in my own heart, Lord, I feel like I'm, I'm working to try to gain traction with this and that it's hard for me to care. My heart grows dull. Spirit, give life inside of me. And from my brothers and sisters here, give life inside of them. Grow in them thankfulness for your work. Apart from you, they wouldn't know God at all. Grow in them thankfulness for that. Help the truth to gain traction within them. And Lord, for those here who are not believers, the easiest thing in the world to half snooze through this and walk away and never think about it again. Cause the message to gain traction in their hearts. Spirit, that is your job. I ask you to do that. Take feeble human words spoken and accomplish something spiritual with them. Spirit of God, please do that. If you don't, we fail. We die we perish. Would you do that, please, in our midst, Holy Spirit? We will give you all of the glory.
Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.